understanding for uh, making this possible for hosting us uh, this evening. Um, I'm gonna, uh, and of course, thanks to, to Richard and, and Christina to, uh, for giving us uh, their time to, to present, uh, to discuss about the creative economy in Peru. Um, I'm going to, to make a, like an introduction about uh, what is going on now uh, about the institutional, uh, mainly the institutional uh, aspects uh, of the creative uh, uh, sector in Peru. Uh, some uh, economic uh, general data uh, uh, about uh, the, the creative industries in, in, in Peru, and, and then uh, some uh, uh, what I think are the main uh, basic uh, challenges uh, um, for the sector for the next uh, four or five years. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to discuss three three aspects: the institutional uh, frame, uh, the economic impact, uh, and data uh, about the sector, and the context and opportunities and challenges. Uh, so to begin with, uh, I wanted to hi uh, to like mention some uh, um, institutional highlights of the cultural sector between 1940 and 2016, really fast, just to to understand the process of institutionalization of culture uh, in um, in Peru. So we'll need to mention here the uh, yeah the creation of the uh, cultural extension and artistic education direction at the Ministry of Education the creation of the Cultural National Commission in 1941. Uh, in 1971, the creation of the National Institute of Culture under the military government. Uh, in 1994, uh, the film law uh, approved and the CONDESINE, the office in charge of promoting the film industry in, in Peru uh, until 2010. In 2003, uh, Two sectorial laws approved: uh, the uh, arts, uh, the one related to performing arts, and the one related to publishing. Uh, in 2010, and this is probably the, the most important milestone uh, in regards of the creative industries: the creation of the Ministry of Culture, including a general direction of the creative of the cultural industries. Um, in 2013. Uh, Cultural policies and guidelines referring specifically to the cultural industries were uh, developed and launched by the Ministry of Culture. Uh, sorry, in 2014, uh, I think this is quite important, I'm going to discuss this by the end of the presentation. The Ministry of Production uh, includes the creative sector in the National Plan for the Diversification of the Economy. Mm, I think that's a, that's a, there's a good opportunity there. And uh, between 2011 and 2016, uh, general data has been produced uh, by the Ministry of Culture in association uh, with uh, several international uh, institutions, such as UNESCO, IED, and the uh, OP Consulting, uh, and others. Uh, okay. So, in regards to the Ministry of Culture, uh, this is how it looks like, like in, in a very simple way. Uh, so there are two vice ministers, right? Uh, the vice minister of uh, heritage uh, and cultural industries and the vice, vice minister of interculturality. Um, and of, uh, well, the vice minister, of, vice minister of heritage and cultural industries is uh, composed by uh, five general directions. So yeah, the direction of uh, cultural heritage, the direction of archaeological uh, heritage, the direction of museums. Uh, the direction of the defense of uh, cultural heritage and the, the most uh, 
recent, the, the new one, because all of the others existed in a way uh, before the Ministry of Culture, uh, dispersed in, in different institutions. Uh, the, direction, uh, the general direction of cultural industries and arts. And so basically, the Ministry of Culture is, uh, was uh, uh, installed, was created by merging uh, cultural institutions that were uh, previously either under the Ministry of Education, such as CONACINE or, um, uh, or the Instituto Nacional de Cultura, and uh, local and regional museums, uh, uh, and then, well, the Vice Minister of Interculturality was created uh, yes, to, to form the Ministry of Culture, right? So I think there are like two main processes uh, regarding the institutional, uh, um, the cultural institutional uh, consolidation of culture in, uh, of, in Peru. Uh, the first one, and this is this is uh, similar to what has happened in different uh, uh, Latin American court uh, countries in regard to the uh, cultural uh, sector. I just uh, finished our, our research about the, the history of uh, the ministries of cultures in Latin America, and there are quite a few similar processes. Uh, the first one is this one, uh, the merging and grouping of diverse institutions uh, within a ministry, right? A ministry or a secretary, but the figure of the ministry is much more common now. So acquiring institutional autonomy and uh, sort of independence, right? Because uh, um, in the case of Peru, Argentina, uh, um, British Brazil, and some others, uh, the cultural institutions institutions were under the Ministry of Education or Tourism, uh, and now yeah, they have acquired this autonomy, relatively autonomy, right? And uh, well, very much related to this uh, process, the acquisition of formal uh, power in the state bureaucracy, right? Because now the the representatives of the cultural sector. Uh, can at least sit at the same table uh, together with the representatives of the ministries of production, uh, education, uh, tourism, commerce, right? Uh, so they have a, a, at least voice in the uh, presidential uh, uh, executive meetings uh, and so on, right? So um, obviously the, uh, some ministers have more political power and, and uh, budget and staff and uh, uh, presence than others, and, and obviously culture is not one of the, the most powerful, but still formally, I think they, this, this has meant, I mean, if we revise what has happened from the 40s until now, I think there, there has been an, an acquisition of uh, formal uh, bureaucratic uh, power. Maybe that's not great. Um, but this has happened within a constant of, of volatility and fragility, right? Uh, and again, this is very much common to other uh, Latin American countries. Um, so, for example, in the case of Peru, we've had five, minister, five ministers in five years. So, uh, yeah, one minister per year. And uh, obviously this means as well the, the changes of uh, uh, political lines, of uh, staff, of uh, sometimes policies, right? So this is not... a exclusive to the cultural sector, uh, as we all know, but it is happening in this new uh, ministry as well, right? And uh, it is still an sort of, I mean, the creative industries as a, as a name, as a, as a sector, right? It's still kind of unknown and unconsidered 
and considerate for uh, for the political parties, for example. If we take into account the last election uh, this year, uh, yeah, this year, uh, only two of ten uh, parties included the creative industries in their governmental plan, right? Uh, one of them, uh, which uh, won the election, right? The other one was uh, French Camp. Um, okay. So um, the general direction of cultural industries and arts. Um, yeah, this is the 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 main aim of the of the of this direction according to the ministry uh, uh, norms and, and rules, right? So. Uh, I just want to read quickly to formulate, coordinate, execute, and supervise the policies, strategies, and actions oriented towards the stimulation of artistic creation and promote uh, the artistic activities in diverse fields uh, to promote the productivity and competitiveness of the industries that are directly related to the artistic creation, the audiovisual, publishing, music, and new media production. So they are mentioning the sector, sectors there and the distribution of cultural services and goods usually protected by intellectual property rights. So obviously they are going to the to one of the hearts of the creative industries that are precisely the uh, intellectual property uh, uh, rights. Right? Um, and internally, this is how the the direction uh, uh, looks. Uh, so there are four uh, subdirections. There are four direcciones de línea, as they they uh, name. Uh, and they are divided mainly by subsectors, except in one case. So we have the direction of the audiovisual, uh, pornography, and new media uh, in charge of uh, film, music, uh, video games, and digital animation. But mainly is strongly um, co-opted by the film uh, sector, right? Because the budget is mainly directed to the film uh, industry because of the film law that guarantees an annual budget. So uh, in, in the form of national contest, so so the film industry occupies the major uh, time uh, and budget of the of this direction, of this subdirection. Then the direction of arts, uh, in charge of the visual and performing arts, and also of cultural collectives and cultural movements. So they also have this work in a more uh, social uh, dimension. They are in charge of this. This famous program developed by, by Brazil originally, uh, Punto de Cultura, right? So different cultural, cultural associations uh, working in the uh, uh, all around the country, and uh, this program is uh, led by, by people at the Direction of Arts. Then the Direction of National Cuts, and this is not properly a, like a... Um, a direction in charge of a specific sector, right? This is mainly a, a direction in charge of promoting and producing uh, events and uh, spectacles and uh, uh, activities uh, by the, uh, the elen by the elencos nacionales, right? So the, there are six national cast elencos nacionales: uh, national folklore, national ballet, national symphony orchestra, youth symphony orchestra, national chorus, and youth national chorus, right? So. So this is the third uh, uh, subdirection, and finally, the direction of publishing and reading, uh, obviously in charge of the uh, publishing uh, industry, uh, and the promotion of, of reading mainly with uh, schools, right? So they have uh, some association with the Ministry of Education uh, uh, now, right? Uh, 
And uh, in addition to these four, uh, there is also the, the Grand National Theater uh, working with this direction, not officially, not formally. It is not under the norms of the ministry, but, uh, but they are usually uh, working together in, in different aspects, for example, with the direction of national cast and so on. So the Grand National Theater, uh, not officially there, and the uh, regional directions of culture. This is quite interesting, uh, uh, quite interesting case because well, uh, there are uh, directions of culture in every uh, department, in every region in, in Peru, and uh, formally uh, they need to have at least one person in charge of the uh, cultural industries, right? Uh, so, uh, at least uh, uh, formally, officially, uh, in each department there is one. Obviously, there are differences between uh, departments such as Cusco and, or, or others, but uh, there are, there is, there are uh, regional directions of culture in, in, in every department. Right? And they work together with the, in terms of cultural industries, they work together with this general direction. Um, okay. So basically, the institutional frame, uh, yeah, there is institutional support in the form of a, of a Ministry of Culture and a direction in charge of promoting the creative industries, and that's obviously good news. And, and this, this, it, it is a, a, a sector that I think it's still learning how to uh, operate uh, within the state, within the state uh, bureaucracy, within the, the, the state. Uh, uh, a power uh, and all the not only the administrative but the political uh, uh, complexities that that entails, right? So, so it's probably the most new general direction. This uh, probably in, in, so far in Peru, uh, uh, I can't think in, in any other uh, recently created uh, general direction. Right? So they have the support of of the of being now uh, under a ministry of culture, right? Uh, there is a new legal uh, framework being revisited and updated, and this is a, a, a major challenge that uh, the sector needs to, to tackle. So, um, the, 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 law, the laws we mentioned uh, in regards of film and publishing and art, they are all being re revisited and uh, updated and hopefully uh, uh, um, passed to Congress, uh, but probably that will take some time. Uh, and there are cultural policies elaborated in 2003, but there are still uh, I mean, the, the cultural policies uh, created and disseminated by the Ministry of Culture in 2013 are, are still very general and, uh, um, and really does, uh, do, do not tackle the, the specific complexities of each subsector uh, or even in a horizontal uh, way. Um, Again, the political fragility and volatility, the constant change of themes, uh, and decentralization opportunities with the regional direction of cultures. I think that's uh, a, a very interesting platform, but uh, there is a, I think there is a lost opportunity within the Lima's uh, current uh, city hall uh, administration because uh, uh, it's not a, a party usually uh, um, related uh, in the promotion of, of the cultural sector, but uh, totally uh, in, in opposed to, to them, actually. Uh, so uh, we, we will mention, I'll mention this in a bit, probably, but uh, uh, in the former administration, uh, a subdirection of cultural industries only focused in Lima was created, and this was uh, dismantled uh, with the new, uh, with the current administration, right? 
So, um, so I think for the next uh, two or probably six years, uh, I don't think in, in terms of bureaucratic power uh, or bureaucratic uh, uh, institutional support in Lima uh, in regards to the, to the city hall administration, I don't think there's going to be much change. Um, okay, uh, so I have five minutes. I'm going to go fast with the economic dimension and just want to mention that uh, one of the, sorry, one of the uh, main uh, challenges, of course, is the, uh, uh, the creation and the production of, uh, of uh, information, of consistent data, of reliable data. Uh, there, have, there, there have been some, some uh, researches published in, uh, since 2005 in, in direct relation to the cultural industries, and I'm going to mention some of them. So uh, the research by the Universidad San Martín de Porres in 2005 on the economic uh, uh, contribution of the cultural sector, uh, the research uh, commissioned by, by in the copy <coughs> by the National Office for the Protection of Intellectual Property Rights about the economic contribution of copyright-based industries in Peru. And this is based upon the, the WIPO methodology uh, uh, and the WIPO uh, uh, definition and characterization of the uh, copyright-based industries. There are some uh, specific surveys developed by Pontificia Universidad Católica uh, in, re in relation to specific sectors. And I think they've published uh, surveys about the, yeah, the music industry. Well, yeah, the music. So there are mainly uh, cultural uh, consumption surveys, right? In relation to music, to publishing, and to um, film, right? Uh, but they are not like uh, uh, consistent. Right? The, the first one was in 2009, and the, and the last one was last year. So, yeah. and there are quite good information uh, uh, about um, cultural consumption and audience profiling in in Lima, uh, developed by the uh, last uh, uh, administration, and they produce a lot, uh, a lot of information. The information was, uh, was in the web, right? But uh, with the new uh, administration, they deleted all the information, right? So you cannot find it uh, any, anywhere now. Well, I can send it to you, but uh, there is, it is not there anymore uh, because they're trying to, yeah, to, to erase uh, everything what uh, was done before, right? Uh, and more recently, uh, by the Ministry of Culture in association with other uh, institutions, uh, the Indicadores UNESCO de la Cultura para el Desarrollo, uh, uh, so in association with, with UNESCO, and they presented this last year, some general aspect about the economic and social impact uh, of the cultural sector. Then you have this uh, cultural satellite accounts uh, methodology developed by the uh, Andres Bello Agreement. Uh, this is a quite interesting uh, um, method methodology uh, initially a work by the Ministry of Culture in Colombia that is a, a really interesting case in terms of in institutional support. And they, they have replicated this in, in almost, or they are replicating this in almost every Latin American country. And they've been working this in Peru for, for a couple of years and they haven't still presented the, the results. Um, but it's there. Uh, and the Dirección de Artes uh, launched uh, two years ago the Info Artes platform, and so if you're interested in, in knowing more about the, like a, a general map of the cultural uh, uh, groups and institutions uh, divided by sector, by uh, location, uh, uh, this is a, a nice, uh, an interesting platform. 
so and it's the, the first like a uh, website uh, uh, constantly producing maybe not that constantly but producing information about the cultural sector by the the government right uh, so it's quite interesting um, okay so some uh, basic data uh, uh, based upon the the, the researches I mentioned uh, I just mentioned in 2005, Peruvian copyright-based industry contributed uh, yeah. that uh, of, of added value, so uh, which represents 2.7 percent of the national total, and created almost 600,000 jobs, right? which represented 4.5 percent of the total employment. And in 2008, um, according to the UNESCO indicators, based on the 2008 Peruvian National Census, the percentage of people working in cultural establishments establishments, both in cultural and non-cultural activities, represents 4.36% of the total national employment. And this is a, a, a thought that I always enjoy to, to present, and that uh, um, according to these uh, uh, indicators to, do, to this research, the percentage of people working specifically in cultural activities uh, represented 3.33% of the working force, force, which is more than what the mining industry employs. Right? So uh, this was uh, launched by the Ministry of Culture. Uh, culture will generate more uh, employment than uh, mining. Uh, and that was interesting because uh, that also entailed some, some sort of dispute between both ministries, right? <laughs> uh, well, obviously, the mining industry uh, generates more revenue and profits and, and money, right? But in terms of employment, uh, according to this, uh, to the, the UNESCO indicators, culture uh, generates more. more. Uh, so yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. And uh, regarding cultural infrastructure, um, so yeah, in 2012, uh, Peru registered uh, 705 public libraries, 108 cultural centers, uh, 317 museums and galleries, 55 theaters. Uh, yeah, okay, uh, 123 bookshops and 56 movie theaters, right? This is according to the Atlas de, Pat uh, de Patrimonio Infraestructura Cultural developed by the Ministry of Culture and, and the, um, uh, yeah, it was the Banco Interamericano de Desarrollo. Um, so this only registered the formal uh, cultural institutions and so obviously there are, there are much more, well, there are more. Um, but still, this tells us uh, two things. Obviously, that there is a, a, a lack of cultural infrastructure in, in uh, all, all, all around the country, but mainly that the huge differences between uh, the cultural infrastructure bet uh, uh, in Lima and in, and in any other city in, in the country, right? So obviously, in this case, this case shows the number of theaters per region. The last one, the longest bar is Lima, which has uh, 50, 55 theaters. And uh, the, the second one is Arequipa only with five, right? And uh, we, uh, there are like 15 uh, regions without, without a theater, without a, a formally registered theater, right? And this repeats with uh, uh, movie theaters and uh, libraries and so on, right? Uh, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. And in terms of cultural consumption, uh, just like, it's, it's, diverse uh, uh, specific data. Uh, 
160,000 people attended the National Theater in 2015, uh, 1.2 million people visited Machu Picchu in the same year, uh, the Museo Tumba Realiati Sipan that uh, is one of the top five museums in the country uh, located in the northern region of, of Peru, is visited by around uh, 150,000 people. And according to the Universidad Católica survey I mentioned uh, uh, developed last year, uh, Peruvian people read 3.3 uh, books uh, per year. Uh, so no, yeah, I'm gonna it's the same thing. Always. So I'm gonna finish with this the context and opportunities. Um, I think there are some good news, obviously, and, and some uh, not 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 that good. Uh, the good is that yeah, the, the in terms of uh, uh, economy, we are growing steadily uh, in a in a rate of 5.9 percent over the last uh, 10 years. And this means more consumption capacity, uh, the, the expansion of the middle class, right? uh, the reduction of poverty. So in terms of, of, uh, of economy, there, there's a good opportunity there. But uh, as we know, this is a model very dependent on the, on the primary uh, goods uh, uh, exportation, right? So dependent on the major economies uh, uh, in the world. Um, and well, uh, this has been uh, uh, like this thing like that like for the last hundred years. I don't know. Uh, but aware of this uh, of this barrier, and I'm going uh, I'm going back to the uh, to the Ministry of Production. Uh, this ministry created the national plan for diversification of the economy, and included the creative industries as a. Um, uh, and I quote as the new potential engine uh, of the uh, uh, national economy, right? So they, they were trying to, to find and research and to uh, promote uh, different uh, uh, sectors and the creative industries actually were not originally included, but uh, after a, a pressure from the Ministry of Culture, and again, this goes back to the importance of having institutional power in terms of a ministry, uh, this sector was included, and now they they have created this uh, creative table, the Mesa Creativa, composed by representatives of five five subsectors uh, of the cultural industries and uh, of the Ministry uh, uh, of Work and Industry and Commerce. And basically, their goal is to identify the uh, barriers and the uh, potentialities and the opportunities uh, of these subsectors in order to to develop the creative industries as an alternative uh, uh, engine of the of the economy. So I think this is this is quite a good opportunity. They've been working, I think, quite good for the last uh, eighteen months. But now it's in, in a bit of a pause, obviously because of the uh, transition, the the political transition. Right? Um, so. In terms of the new government, I think there is political commitment to the cultural sector, uh, at least formally. They, they, their plan uh, in, uh, related to the creative industries, I think, was the, the best one uh, of all the, the parties. Uh, and the, the presentation of, uh, by the Prime Minister in the Congress, the first presentation of uh, the Prime Minister in the Congress included the creative industries. Uh, the creative industries were mentioned as a new, as a new relevant field. So I think there are some good news there, but this, it is too early to, to, to tell about the political line or the effects that these uh, official commitments will, 
will, will happen, will, will take place uh, for the following years, right? Uh, so just to mention this, the last slide, three, three challenges, three, like there are, obviously there are more challenges in, in, the, in the sector, but just three of them, uh, uh, information and research. So to keep on producing data about the, the sector, right? Uh, institutional consolidation. Uh, this, this implies a uh, lot, lots of things, but I think to, to keep the, the, the form of the ministry and to reform, re reinforce the, the sector in terms of institutional apparatus, I think it's quite, quite important, uh, especially during the, the first uh, 10 years of the ministry. And the articulation of political uh, positioning, right? To to compromise compromise allies in the public, private, and, and social levels, right? Uh, to to try to to engage with the Ministry of Production, of Commerce, of Work. Uh, uh, I think the Argentinian case is quite interested in that sense, uh, uh, but uh, I think Peru has to has to work on that as well. And finally, the, to keep in mind the intercultural perspective, right? To, to bear in mind that uh, the cultural industries in, in Peru operates in terms of institutions of, and of content, operates in a, in a particular uh, context, right? In a particular social arena, right? So uh, uh, to be aware that Peru is a, is a, a socially fragmented uh, uh, society uh, it has a lot of rich richness in, in terms of different cultures and, uh, and collectives and groups, but still very discriminative and, and racist and so on. So to bear in mind in terms of the, the good and bad uh, aspects of it, to bear in mind the context, the cultural context in which this industry operates and to intervene in it, right? The economic impact is, of course, uh, uh, absolutely relevant, but not to forget that uh, for me, the cultural industries has also to intervene uh, politically and, and socially in, in, the, in the society they operate. Right? And, yeah, that's it. So over to you, Richard, please. 2015, um, we undertook um, a study of um, three creative industry sectors in Peru. Um, the study was financed by the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office from something called the Prosperity Fund. Um, and the thing about the Prosperity Fund is it has to be um, rooted in a Peruvian organisation working in partnership with a UK-based organisation. So we were approached actually by the Ministry of Culture in Peru to help them undertake um, a mapping study of three creative industries sectors. So, as I say, we were funded out of the FCO and particularly with the, um, the Embassy of Peru. Um, and one of my colleagues, Mathieu, is in the audience here. And we also had a researcher based in Lima, and we had some researcher support as well in Cusco, because the other partner in the study was um, the Ministry of Culture in the Cusco region as well. So just a little bit about us. We're a, um, a kind of, I suppose, research and uh, a strategy consultancy company, and we really only work in the kind of creative and cultural sectors. Um, we're predominantly based in the UK. We have a small office in China as well, um, uh, but we increasingly work internationally. And I guess really since about uh, 2006, we've been sort of working and advising um, organisations in other countries who want to conduct uh, research and mapping studies on creative industries, having spent the previous six years or so doing those kinds of 
studies in the UK. Um, so we've, uh, I've worked in um, Shanghai and South Africa and Vietnam, as well as in Peru and giving talks in Cuba about this kind of work. Okay. What we were asked to do was um, really two things. One was about trying to produce reliable um, data and insight about the creative industry's needs and potential in Peru. Um, and the second point was about exchanging knowledge between the UK sectors and, and those in Peru as well. And I guess the reason behind the commission is, is partly alluded to by something that Felix was saying, is that for a variety of kind of technical and structural reasons related both to uh, the sector itself in terms of its structure and its particular composition, but also related to how standard uh, government statistics classifications work, actually getting accurate information on the creative industries is, is quite hard. So um, it was uh, decided by the Ministry of Culture that the, the approach that they would take at this stage was not... Uh, not solely to rely on secondary data. So as Philip was saying, there's some kind of longer-term processes from the satellite accounting systems going on in terms of looking at the secondary data. But our project was about primary data. So we undertook the work through a kind of mixed-method approach, through undertaking surveys of freelancers and businesses working in these sectors, um, through doing focus, focus groups and interviews, in both Lima and Cusco with the different sectors, a little bit of literature reviewing. Um, the, I guess the knowledge exchange element of the work, we convened a sort of forum between the UK and Peru that was held in Lima in uh, December of last year where we brought over about five or six representatives from the UK from those sectors to come and present and talk with representatives from those sectors in Peru. And then the as always with our work, the end result is a, is a report which includes some kind of economic estimates based on uh, modelling that we've derived from uh, variables within the survey work, but also combined with other secondary data sources. So I'm just going to talk through some of the data from the survey results, informed with a little bit of, I suppose, context and insight from some of the, the qualitative work that we did as well. Oh, and I should say, we didn't have any choice in which subsectors were we were looking at. These were pre-chosen by um, our, our kind of partners in, in Peru. So, in terms of the uh, the survey, I think we had about four hundred and twenty responses. It was distributed by a, a number of means, but including the InfoArtes platform that I think Felix alluded to. Uh, and these are the, this is sort of the, the data we got back in terms of gender, so a, a little bit biased towards um, men rather than women, um, particularly so in Cusco, um, much less so in Lima, which I guess is a little bit surprising compared to our other experience. However, the education level is, is, is very standard. Um, people who work in the creative industries wherever we find them, tend to be extremely well-educated. So again, here you've got 81% uh, educated to two degree level or above, um, compared to 30% in, in Peru in general. In terms of employment status, as you can see, independent 
worker, so uh, what we would call, call, I guess, freelancer or sole trader, not employing anybody else, is by far the highest category. Again, extremely common in whatever sort of creative industry sector you would, you would pretty much tend to look at. Um, although probably there are still fewer sort of large employers in Peru than you would get in, in perhaps other more developed creative economies. Starting to look at the issue of kind of pay and remuneration, um, one of the things we see is that uh, you can see that the sector isn't fully professionalized. Um, so lots of people are doing a mix of work that is fully paid, partly paid, and sometimes not paid at all. Now, in part, that's not just a representation, if you like, of market demand, because even in the UK, people in the creative sector take on work that they don't get paid for for a variety of reasons. could be about learning a particular technique, working with a particular kind of software package or, or whatever, or it could be about building up your portfolio and CV, because these sectors are very reputationally based, and uh, the kind of work that you do, so working with a particular director, working on a particular prestigious project, it may be that if the only way you could get to work on that would be through only being partly paid or not working, sorry, or not paid at all, you may choose to take that job anyway because you may think actually it will have some economic returns down the line. Portfolio working is common, so about uh, over half of the, the sample in total, and particularly in Cusco, uh, are deriving income from other activities. Again, this is relatively common, certainly in some subsectors of the creative industries, even in the UK or places like Germany as well. Performing arts seems to be, I guess, the most economically precarious in, in that 60% are either only partly paid or entirely voluntary in terms of the work that they're doing. So looking from that sort of mix of... Uh, how people are, are getting remunerated in the general sense, we also ask them about their, their income. Um, as in the UK, more technologically intensive sectors, so film, but also in particular games and new media, uh, generally pay better than in performing arts. Um, however, even, even then, uh, all of the sectors pretty much are still a little bit below the Peruvian average. Now, that, that would be different from over here. Over here, if you're a visual artist or if you're in the performing arts, you probably are likely to be paid less than the average minimum wage. But if you're working in film and television, you're probably more likely to be paid more than the average wage. Uh, I guess more positively, we were also asking for trends for freelancers in terms of the number of paid working days that they had uh, in the last 12 months. And that seems to be increasing. So the, the, the balance, which is the the number of people for whom it's increasing minus the number of people for whom it's decreasing is, is net positive, so there's a positive balance of about 29% in both performing arts and kind of games, new media, and a little bit less in film. Within that sort of sample of about 420 businesses, sorry, 420 so responses, we had about 75 who were responding as businesses, so as people who employ other people. Um, so we asked them a specific set of questions, and one of these was around sort of trends in turnover. So looking at the last 12 months, um, what had happened to their turnover? As you can see, um, the majority had increased. There were some that had decreased. 
but again, once you look at the, the, the balance and the ratio between those, a balance of sort of 35% had grown over the last 12 months again, it's kind of net positive trend. Growth was more frequent, but also you were also more likely to see uh, turnover going down in Lima as opposed to Cusco. We then asked, if you like, the employers what they felt were the skills gaps within their workforce. Um, and these were sort of the, the, the top answers that they gave. So getting access to the right creative talent um, was high amongst the agenda. Business planning skills. Um, interestingly, multicultural focus, picking up on that issue about um, kind of the complexity of the different population segments within uh, Peru and the need to kind of reflect that and use that uh, within the creative and cultural industries. Skills to develop content for multiple platforms, that's again much more to the fore I guess in some of the audiovisual and media segments. And generic sales and marketing skills as ever uh, in the creative and cultural industries. We asked about main barriers to growth and apologies because the slide it's not quite easy to see where the split between Lima and Cusco is but it sort of starts again there. There's not a huge amount of difference between the sectors in Lima and Cusco, but there, there are some differences. I mean, the commonalities are barriers that are repeatedly expressed, which are around sort of government regulations and bureaucracy and licensing, um, and a general sort of feeling from the sector that they don't get very much support from the government. Um, Issues around access to finance, again, this is a very regular issue that the sector brings up. We can maybe have a general discussion about what that might be. Um, but I think what's interesting is that in Lima, one of the things that came through relatively strongly was around um, two things that didn't crop up in Cusco at all, which one was around a kind of lack of uh, media coverage and exposure, which is in itself might help with some of the other issues because if you've got a better media coverage and profile it may be that getting access to finance might be easier for instance and also there was clearly an expression in, in Lima across the, the different groups that we spoke to around concern about getting access to space appropriate and affordable space whether this was around actual space to perform in actual workspace for companies and businesses um, or, or actually kind of venues to perform it. And again, uh, I guess pressure in space is, is, is uh, much, much more intense in Lima than in Cusco. In Cusco, the, the one thing that's very different and striking from Lima is just the thinness of demand, really. And I guess uh, outside of Cusco itself, the Cusco region is, is, is really quite rural and quite sparsely populated. So that's the thinness of demand in terms of actually having customers uh, for your creative business, whether that's a business-to-business facing creative business or whether it's a consumer facing business. And one of the things I should say is we've kind of aggregated these barriers to growth into these kind of generic categories, but there are actually very specific things when you drill down into the different subsectors. So for instance, film would talk about the fact that they're not exempt from general sales tax, whereas their uh, compatriots in Chile are exempt from this and they're having to compete, therefore, against Chile, so it's not an even playing field. Production, or very few production funds compared to other countries in Latin America. 
performing arts, very specific problems around obtaining regulations for performances in public spaces. Games and new media, some specific issues about having to pay double taxation levels on imported sort of digital tools and software. Ambitions to grow. Again, one of the positive things going forwards. Um, so this was, we asked people about your ambitions to grow over the next 12 months. Uh, very positive overall, a balance of 80% expressing them to grow over the next year. This was really to talk about how we build the economic estimates. Um, we generated the, the uh, GVA estimates, which is the gross value added estimates, which is a sort of measure of productivity output for the sector. We built those up from uh, essentially wage information because we didn't have enough businesses reporting on the turnover, which would have been the usual way to, to go about it. Um, so we went through a process of establishing kind of average earnings and the median number of workers per business, which came through the survey, and we sort of grossed these up for uh, the population in those sectors, in both Lima and Cusco, um, to produce estimates for the total earnings in the sector, and using a reference source in each case for the size of the, the overall firm or workforce population, and then we converted that into price value added. So what do we come up with? Um, I guess the, 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 the sort of headline findings um, sort of within the city region uh, for those three sectors is that in Lima, these three sectors support almost 23,000 uh, full-time equivalent jobs, um, generating just under 1.5 billion uh, in GBA, as measured in um, Nueva Soles. And in a much smaller, less populous uh, region in, and more rural region in Cusco, this is obviously much, much smaller. So it's about 800 FTE jobs. So you can see the difference there. Um, about 52 million uh, sorry, in GBA. Just to say that performing arts, as you'll see, is kind of comfortably the largest sector. It's also obviously the, the oldest and the most well established and probably the largest defined. So performing arts here includes. Theatres, circus, opera, live music, puppetry, circus, dance, um, whereas some of those other computer games is incredibly narrowly defined within this work. And even new media here is very well, it's very narrowly defined. It's not the definition of new or digital media that we would sort of work with or recognise in the UK. It was very much trying to look at sort of almost like a, a definition which was about kind of digital multimedia arts rather than digital media as we would recognise it, which in the UK would include all of the kind of creative services around digital communication and advertising. So people, digital agencies and media agencies who build complicated websites and advertising campaigns for, for brands, for instance. So, I guess kind of just sort of summing up in terms of some conclusions, implications and Observations from the study. I think it, it, it's quite clear that kind of Peru um, are a little bit behind the curve, if you like, in terms of Latin America's um, understanding and support for the creative industries. Uh, kind of Felix alluded to some of that. So, if you look at Argentina, or if you look at Colombia, or Brazil, or, or Chile, they're all. 
and a bit more advanced uh, than Peru is. But there is plenty of kind of advantages within the country, and Felix has already alluded to some of those, a young workforce, a rising kind of middle class, um, consumption, more sophisticated business demand. Um, and also I think it's fair to say that quite a lot of the challenges that businesses brought up were around issues that are sort of amenable to public policy and regulation. So in other words, um, aside from some of the businesses in Cusco who were talking about there just aren't enough customers, a lot of the other businesses and freelancers were saying that there are things that can be done here by government acting in a, in a smarter and better way, thinking um, more clearly about the needs of the sector and joining up with other departments to ensure that regulation around, say, city centres or taxation works better for us. However, in order to do that, that requires, I guess, two things. Firstly, it requires kind of the institutional support from government that Felix took quite a lot about, and the institutional support not just from within the Ministry of Culture, but in relation to the Ministry of Production, in relation to the Finance Ministry, and so on. But it also requires a much more sustained and consistent dialogue and engagement between industry and government. And I think this is one of the things that struck us quite uh, a lot, particularly when we were doing the, the, the Knowledge Exchange Forum between the UK and Peru, is actually how little previously the sector had actually got involved with government. Because previously, I think they felt that government didn't really listen to them, didn't really care about them, so why would they bother trying to get involved? And if they did get involved, they didn't know how to. You know, how do you interlocute with government? Um, and on the government part, uh, there was a willingness within the Ministry of Culture to do this. But again, there were how to get hold of the sector. And partly that problem is around the lack of, kind of cross-sector industry organisations. So one of the things that the UK did very quickly and very early and was one of the reasons why the creative industry's agenda was picked up and promoted so uh, uh, in such a high profile way was um, way back in 1998 um, a group of kind of industry leaders across all of the different creative industries came together to form um, a sort of creative industries expert group who commissioned the first mapping study and that history of sort of collaboration against what are actually quite different and distinct vertical sectors continues to this day. So we have the Creative Industries Council, we have the Creative Industries Federation, um, and that has quite a lot of advantages. You know, you're at the strength in numbers and you present a kind of single message and a point of contact which government can engage with, and you have the kind of the weight of numbers behind you for government to start to take you seriously. That's kind of missing in Peru at the moment, and it's missing in lots of other kind of emerging economy contexts in which we do this work. And I guess one of the reasons for that is it does require real leadership and commitment from the sector to, to do that, because it has to come from the sector themselves. They have to get together and self-organise and put aside their sort of differences, and there are differences, and there are different issues that people want, if you like, fixing for their sector. Um, so is that, you know, one of the questions that we pose at the end of the report is, you know, is there an appetite 
in the sector in Peru to do this because it's it's hard work. It's a slog, and people are meantime running businesses in an environment you know, which is difficult. You know, we all recognise that. But also there's there's the issue, and this comes back to the chicken and egg situation is if there isn't cross-party political support for the creative industries agenda, if you like, the danger is that you self-organise, you, 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 you make some headway with one government administration, mm-hmm. the next government administration comes in and literally gets rid of all of the initiatives and sweeps away you know, four years of hard work. So that's a real disincentive for industry to actually undertake this kind of hard process of, of, of kind of advocacy, lobbying and institution building. You know, but it is important not just because of, um, as I was saying, kind of weighting numbers and sort of lobbying and advocacy and profile, but also because it reflects the reality of the sector. So one of the things we did in the survey was talk, ask them which sector do you work in? And it's quite clear that most people say, well actually we don't just work in one sector, we work in you know, several sectors. So film in our survey here covers not just people who are working in film but people who are working in sort of all forms of I guess short audio visual content whether that's music commercials or whether that's corporate videos or, you know, and, and corporate films or whether that's um, advertising uh, and so on it also includes animation as well um, so it's kind of the reality of the sector but also there are a set of if you like horizontal issues around you know generic business skills around issues around, say, uh, financial planning and management, business management, strategy skills, which are exactly the same whether you know, you're working in architecture or whether you're working in film or whether you're working in the performing arts. So kind of horizontal approaches at a creative industries wide sector level can sort of sit on top of kind of vertical investment strategies as well. And it's no surprise that if you look in other Latin American countries, the if you like the creative industries policy that has developed has addressed all of these kind of cross-sectoral more business challenges. And I think just to sum up sort of Peru's challenge in developing this is around this issue of kind of institution building and infrastructure as well. So it's not just about sort of networks and associations created for lobbying and advocacy. It's around improving your educational infrastructure. So you know the people in the performing arts decry the fact that uh, performing arts has really been demoted from higher education as a sort of subject worthy of study at higher education level. The fact that there isn't a, a, a specialist film school, um, that people aren't taught enough at school level about how about culture, and uh, and so you're not growing and building a new, a next generation of both consumers and participants, um, about the fact that the collective management organisations, the collecting societies, that you know, don't function very well. So a whole series of sort of um, issues around kind of in- infrastructure and institution building. However, we should say this is entirely, again, entirely common in, in our kind of wider work, you know, because we all... If, whether you go to Vietnam or whether you go to Jordan or, or South Africa or Peru, you always meet incredibly dynamic, smart individuals. The problem that the individuals have is, if, is if you like, capacity building and scaling that up into sustainable businesses that can uh, can subsist and, and thrive over the longer term.
Thanks, please, Christina. Hi, my name is Christina Rosenberg, Peruvian. I have been working here in the UK for the past six years. Uh, a bit more than that, I had the great opportunity to actually work at Buff Consulting some five years ago with Richard, and we're still good friends, so I guess that, that, that's a good time. Uh, and uh, I now work in a company called Technopolis. It's a consultancy that specializes in science and innovation policy. Uh, we have a presence in the UK and in Europe. We have eight offices across Europe, so we, we work uh, Europe and wide. Much, but we big, also much bigger than <laughs> but we also work with Latin American countries and internationally. I have myself been involved in several, of course, for uh, obvious reasons, involved in several projects in Colombia, Chile, and Peru. Now, my focus now it's about innovation policy. So, I wanted to bring today a uh, perspective from that area. So, I'm not going to be talking too much about the creative industries in Peru. I hope it's not a disappointment. But uh, it, it is, in any case, a tool or idea of something that could be implemented in Peru to identify or to uh, foster the, uh, the creative industries and to touch upon some of the issues that have been mentioned by Richard So I'm going to be talking about uh, a tool, a specific tool, a specific process about mapping regional science innovation assets and making a case, case for the creative industries. What's the premise of running these type of exercises at national or regional level? Well, the premise is that by doing so, by identifying what are your innovation assets and capabilities, you're going to be able to identify as a government or region what are your priority areas, areas where you can uh, think about uh, allocating your resources or targeting the resources. And then certain areas in economic sectors uh, will emerge as well, where opportunities for collaborations that are not so obvious will come to life. So in the case of the creative industries, for instance, and I'm going to put a couple of examples of uh, things that have been done here in the UK. Uh, by running these type of exercises, regions and governments can identify strengths, for instance, in uh, biotechnology or uh, healthcare, and then link those to other strengths that they may have, bringing together, for instance, creative industries and strengths around a digital media. So just, just to put some examples. So the idea here is to have a very good broad perspective, look at all the different economic sectors, the creative industries being one of them, and try to bring them together to see how they can uh, interconnect each other, but also to identify, again, priority areas and work to push forward. So in the uh, European Union and in the, in the UK, this type of exercise is organized around a previous set of principles and recommendations on how you run those processes. In the case of the, the European Union, that is known as the Regional Innovation Strategies, it's also Smart Specialization. These have been around for over 20 years uh, across Europe. Most recently, they have been rebranded as these exercises as Smart Specialization, launched in 2010. There's plenty of information on the European Commission website if you're interested. I recommend you to go there, it's risk free, the name that they have. Again, building uh, 20 years of experience of supporting regions to develop uh, innovation strategies based on their capabilities and assets. Now, when I talk about innovation, uh, talking innovation about the very broad sense, so it's technology-based but non-technology-based as well. And uh, the intercept with uh, research is because usually when you talk about innovation policy, you look at it from a system perspective. And the system includes different types of factors, from researchers, universities, academia, research centers, to businesses, industry associations, government, and civil society as well. So uh, it's always, and when I will keep on talking about innovation policy and innovation, it's always from this very system-based uh, perspective. 
So mapping those assets, again, innovation assets and capabilities, is at the core of these uh, exercises of smart specialization. And I'm going to talk a bit more about this. In the UK, more recently, uh, even though, of course, there are still, let's not get it. Um, uh, have, they have launched their own exercise. They also are part of the regional innovation strategies, part of the European Commission. But uh, they have uh, launched their own exercise, a similar exercise called Science Innovation Audits. Uh, it has been launched by the Department of uh, Business Innovation Skills in the UK, called BIS, which recently changed names. Um, and the exercise provides support to consortia made of different universities, businesses, research centers, private organizations to come together to look at the regions, regions in a very loose sense, so basically look at their place and their, their location and geography, and see what are their strengths and what kind of sectors could be driving economic growth. And based on that, make decisions about future investment. So now I'm going to try to unpack a bit more the idea of the two exercises. Uh, the first one, as I said, the European Commission, the Regional Innovation Strategies. And the idea here is that innovation is key for future economic strategies and to support economic, but also so uh, economic growth, but also societal challenges. More and more in the UK, issues like, uh, in, the, in the European Union in general, issues as the age of population, climate change, or a social cohesion are becoming more and more important and uh, identifying innovation capabilities and strengths also go uh, related, very much related to addressing those societal challenges, so it's economic and social as well. Um, those innovation strategies are particularly important at the regional level as they allow to identify some clusters that uh, provide some synergies where a, a complete value chains can be identified and then supported. Uh, so these exercises have led to the identification of knowledge-based clusters and, well, so just to put some examples, uh, the marine industry in Dubai or the textile industry in Northern Ireland or the automotive industry in Germany. So which uh, seem kind of usual suspects, but also more emerging uh, economic sectors are identified for those exercises. Uh, and proximity is important to foster innovation because of closeness and the, the opportunity to collaborate and to exchange information and information flow. Uh, regional innovation strategies have enabled regions to focus on aspects of innovation that are more relevant to their context and needs. And that makes the exercise really powerful as well. It's not just about your abilities, but what, what are your main challenges, goals, and uh, needs. Some key features of these type of exercises, they have to be local and global, meaning, again, focusing on their, your local capabilities but thinking about the future for potential growth and international competitiveness. They have to be participatory and open, uh, inviting different stakeholders and society at large to be part of it, and that was, that's what it's actually a critical success factor because that uh, uh, gives the opportunity of discovering areas where uh, perhaps unknown or not so obvious. So then the obvious sectors like mining, for instance, that will be easily identified. We don't need to invite that through stakeholders to, to know that because it's already the conscious or conscious. But uh, you, you need to keep it open and participatory to identify precisely the areas that are more underdeveloped where there is uh, potential for growth. It needs to be system-based, and that goes back to this idea that I just mentioned, <coughs> talk about innovation. It's about bringing research and innovation, but also uh, technological and organizational innovation, so thinking about innovation in a broad perspective, and also thinking innovation along the private sector, but also in the public sector. And it has to be evidence-based, meaning trying to identify different indicators and data that will help you to corroborate that these are indeed your areas of strengths and not just uh, wishful thinking. 
So uh, how these exercises have led, or how have they led in any case to identification of creative industries as areas of strengths? Yes, they have. Uh, in the case of uh, the smart visualization of the European Union, if, if again, you go to the tool I at Registry, uh, you will find information across all the regions in the UK in, in the European Union that have identified creative industries as an area of priority. There are 53 of them in the European Union, and some of them, many of them have also identified cultural heritage as a strategic priority for research and innovation. And the ones that have identified cultural heritage as an important area, uh, and this comes back to, to, to what I mentioned before about identifying sectors uh, where uh, you can foster collaboration and cross fertilization. Uh, many of them have identified opportunities for cultural heritage technologies, for instance, in terms of conservation, restoration, uh, monitoring, risk management, and environmental protection, um, as well as digitalization imaging. And for others, cultural heritage is a key element of development uh, or innovative approaches for tourism or for sustainable construction. So that's the European case. Uh, in the case of the UK, as I mentioned, recently launched science innovation audit supported by, and now I have the new name, which is the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Uh, we're still trying to understand how energy made it to the mix because this is the innovation industry. But anyway. uh, and they are supporting again a consortia of universities, network businesses, and uh, with, with a close proximity and a history of uh, collaboration. So, this is a part of a broader effort in the UK to uh, identify or improve UK capabilities and find and validate where existing world research areas are coupled with industrial capabilities or emerging industrial capabilities. Um, the, the audits will help to build the evidence for potential global competitive advantage and identify routes for growing that potential. Why is this important? It is here in the UK and uh, uh, it's definitely the case in many countries. Building those uh, what we call here business spaces uh, allows them to different regions or different uh, organizations <coughs> to make the case again uh, the, the ministries that hold the money. So if you want to convince the Ministry of Production, or if you want to convince Treasury, or the Ministry of Economy to invest more in these areas, you have to put uh, forward a very strong case, a strong case that demonstrates that this uh, economic activity is actually going to generate economic growth in the future. Uh, we know that, for instance, in the case of the creative industries, it's go, it goes beyond uh, just generating economic growth. But let's be honest, that's the kind of business case that you have to put together when you're trying to convince the budget holder to invest more in it. So all of these exercise is basically the ministry is providing support to this consortium to be able to build those business cases and then for then in the future to be able to put forward um, requests for further investment in the regions. Um, there is a first uh, wave pilot that has to be run where five consortia have been put together to run their science innovation audits. Uh, some principles around the audits, I'm going to go fast because I'm sure we want to open for, for questions for all the people that have spoken. Uh, they need to be forward-looking, innovation-driven, and evidence-based. So a sort of similar to the kind of principles I mentioned before uh, with the European uh, approach. So the process was the governance structure. We have the ministry supporting and funding those exercises. We have Technopolis, as I'm, I'm leading this uh, exercise, supporting Technopolis, uh, providing some analytical support and quality assurance. 
and then we have different consorts that are coming together and inviting different consultation groups. And this is where it becomes interesting because basically what they have identified are representatives from different industries in the regions that come together, sit together and talk and then exchange information and identify where there is opportunities for collaboration, how they can build a case for the different capabilities um, can, be, um, can be made as a proposition for future investments. So two cases, uh, as I mentioned, five consortia during this first wave, which is still a pilot. Uh, two cases where the creative industries have come and have not, have not come for, and I thought they should have, uh, Edinburgh and Manchester. So the case of Edinburgh, they, through this process, they identified that the digital economy was going to be a priority for them. And the more specifically, uh, businesses that use what they call data-driven innovation, basically businesses that use data, big data, uh, as, as the main uh, source and tool. Um, so it, it then find Edinburgh and the source around Edinburgh identified that uh, they have world class strengths in a range of digital industries and expertise, for instance, in speech and video uh, recognition. But they do not make the link with the creative industries, which was a surprise, uh, from pure experience, and which you will agree with that. One of the uh, major capabilities of Edinburgh around the creative industry, the cultural heritage. However, this exercise did not let them to identify that. So this is just to point out that uh, even sometimes the obvious things will not come up necessarily positively. Now, the case of Great Manchester, that's actually a nice example of how the unexpected arise from these type of exercises. They have identified three areas for uh, fast growth opportunities. Uh, digital economy, again, energy, and industrial biotechnology. They have a very, uh, very strong presence of pharma companies in the region. And within the process, they have identified creative digital media, including television, archive animation, interactive media, as yes, there is of interest. But more interestingly, they have identified the potential for combining two of their sectors, uh, the industrial biotechnology and the creative industries. And one of their value propositions, business propositions for the future, for future investments, is to look at the creative industries to uh, harness creative content for uh, developments in healthcare, which is basically the creation of apps, for instance, or, uh, or mostly apps, or the, the kind of examples that they have, where uh, creatives can put content into it, or for instance, treatment for, there are several examples about, for instance, uh, treatment in terms of Alzheimer or depression um, are done through apps, and the, the creative content for it is done in, uh, in collaboration with people working. So the main benefits of going through this type of process, and so I, I can have mentioned uh, this at the beginning, well, it's an initial focus on prioritization, which is important when resources are scarce, and scarce, uh, this uh, resources are scarce in many countries, even in relatively rich ones, as this one. Uh, collecting evidence to build a business case again, uh, which makes it easier then to have some political back, uh, backing, and then to make, again, the case for the allocation of resources. And uh, it brings together areas where strengths that seem disconnected actually can, can, can come together. Critical success factors that's mostly coming from the European experience, because again, the UK uh, example is a pilot, so there is still a, 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 still a long way to go. Uh, we need to have some sort of regional champions, some organization that's going to be willing to drive the process. Uh, good participatory governance structure, so your ability to bring together different stakeholders from different industries and different sectors, that will make the exercise actually interesting and uh, what makes it to identify uh, areas of growth spot that were not so obvious. 
um, and the related to that, to have a good time for an inclusive design process when those different stakeholders are included and perhaps public consultations are run. Uh, good leadership uh, of the core team that's running the process, open and transparent process that again links back, links back to being, being participatory and inclusive um, and showcase activities and results. Experiment, experiment, experiment. Learn from lessons, identify priority areas, revisit it with the data, see if it, that's still, if it's still the case, revisit that and not be afraid of making mistakes or identifying areas uh, for priority. And the incentives, which is quite important. In the case of the European, in the European case, the regions that go through that process receive money. Uh, associated to it. In many cases, for instance, they only can uh, receive money from certain funds if they have gone to the process of prioritization and, uh, and, and risk three. Uh, in the case of the UK, no money has been promised. However, there was an indication that without a business case, it would have been very difficult to convince, difficult to convince Treasury to give additional resources to the region. So there was some link there to incentives so that organizations will actually want to be part of the process. I will leave it there and uh, thank you very much.